The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in February 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Our guest today is a three-time recipient of the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1967 for A Delicate Balance, 1975 for Seascape, 1994 for Three Tall Women. He's also the recipient of three Tony Awards, 1963 for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, 2002 for The Goat or Who is Sylvia, 2005 a special Tony Award for Lifetime Achievement, his other plays include The Zoo Story, The Death of Bessie Smith, The Sandbox, The American Dream, Tiny Alice. In the current theater season here in the New York City metropolitan area, the tri-state area, shows include Peter and Jerry at the second stage, the New York premiere of Occupant at the Signature Theater, revivals of The Sandbox and American Dream at the Cherry Lane Theater, and the world premiere of Me, Myself, and I at the McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey. We welcome Edward Albee. Welcome, Edward. Thank you. Thank you. That's three and a half Pulitzer Prizes, by the way. Three and a half? Yeah, because um, when Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was up for the Pulitzer Prize, uh, the the jurors Mm -hmm. uh, gave it the prize, Mm -hmm. but some jokers who were... uh, vetting all of that from some newspaper editors decided that the play was too what? I don't know, too good or something. Or, or too violent, and, and, and they turned the juror's award down. Was it a little bit ahead of its time, perhaps? Well, no, it wasn't. They were a little behind their time. They were behind. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, three and a half is... And I got, I just, I got more publicity out of the losing it than uh, getting it, so it was all right. But how did it feel to be accepted by the jurors then turned down by the, the overwhelmed... It seems the way life goes. Major disappointment? Nah. nah. No. As I say, I probably got more mileage out of that happening than I would have if it had been a straight straight award. But I don't, I don't care much about them. You know, it's nice to get them if they're giving them out, but you shouldn't need them. <laughs> well, going from what happened in 1962, let's start talking about the the uh, inadvertent festival of your work that's happening in New York, in the New York area right now, and specifically uh, your newest play, Me, Myself, and I, okay. at the McCarter Theater in the New Jersey. The only thing I didn't want people to get the idea of was that since I am having a birthday this year, that <clears throat> I'd arranged this uh, festival of my <laughs> programs as a self-celebration. No, no, no way. Totally, totally accident. It's nice. Nice, though, but... <laughs> People attending, me, myself, and I at McCarter, open their playbill to be immediately met with a letter to the audience in which you talk about the fact that you don't want to describe what your play is about and you want people coming in with no preconceived notions. Of course. Any play that can be described in two sentences should be two sentences long. That's simple. (laughs) On a practical level... Do you think it's possible to have audiences come in with no preconceived notions? I try to do it. I try to, every time I try to, I sit down at my seat and I, I do what Walter Kerr advised people do, astonish me. I say to the, I say to the curtain, astonish me. And uh, if I'm astonished, if I'm involved, that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, but I, I don't expect a play to be exactly like the kind of play that I like best. I don't expect to play to be serious just because I prefer serious plays. I merely want it to be excellent on its own terms. And, uh, you know, I think the only reason that people don't understand Beckett's plays is they're not set in living rooms because <laughs> there's nothing in a Beckett play that isn't totally comprehensible. But you, 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 you set these damn things on blasted heaths and all, 
and audiences get very confused. Yeah, when we but come like, take Happy Days for example, Beckett's I think is his finest play. Um, there's a woman buried up to her waist in the first act. She's buried up to her neck in, in the earth in, in the second act. That's why there's no third act. And um, this, this confuses everybody. But isn't everybody, by the time they're middle-aged, buried up to their waist in earth? <laughs> and by the time they get old, aren't they buried up to their neck? Of course. But yet when people come in to see an Edward Albee play, given, obviously, your incredible career, it's almost impossible not to come in and think about it in the context of your Why? work. You're watching something else. Thinking about it in the context of something else merely gets in the way of participating fully in what you're watching. Mm-hmm. So you don't want people in the theatrical experience to think about how does this relate to the play about the baby who is afraid of Virginia Woolf. Afterwards, it is its own afterwards thing. if they want to, but not during. Hmm. Of course not during. It takes, them, it takes them out of participating in what's happening on stage. And you want them to be, I presume, concentrating on what they're seeing on stage as opposed to saying, oh, well, that's just like some other sure, play. certainly, you yeah. They're, they don't, they're not there to take a test. <laughs> they're there to have an experience. Exactly, and yes. Hopefully enjoy and learn from, from I, I tell people, every time you go to the theater, you should see the, pretend you're seeing the first play you've ever seen. Mm. So you don't bring all this junk with you. Yet it's interesting that in myself and I, giving nothing away, you have some fun with the conventions of the stage. Well, and if of course. They <laughs> if you can't have fun while you're writing plays, you know, which is such a grim <laughs> occupation anyway, why not? <laughs> why do you say it's grim? Well, because um, virtue is not its own reward in theater. It's a tough racket. Mm-hmm. Everybody who p- practices theater knows that it's a pretty unfair and tough racket. But in a sense, even though it may be grim in terms of uh, you know, getting the pay- play up on stage, you know, the, the, the economics of it, the business side of it, as a creative exercise for someone who, like yourself, is creative, it must be a joy. Oh, it is. If, if you can work with people who are willing to present the play as you wrote it and not insist on all sorts of cuts and changes for commercial reasons, but that's happening more and more. The more expensive theater gets, uh, the more pressure is put on playwrights to, to compromise all the time. Even established playwrights? Of course. We don't have to do it, and I don't. Mm-hmm. And... Um, other guys that I know don't do it either, but some do. You know, if you have a family and you don't teach or anything, you know. Just like some actors do Hollywood movies to make a dollar to be able to do plays, I guess. No, people do Hollywood movies because they think they'll get terribly famous. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's why they do movies. Yeah. The um, the show that is going to be running at the, the Cherry Lane opens on March 11th. It's actually two of your one acts. No, it doesn't. It starts previewing on March Pre- previous, 11th. Right, yeah. Previous, right. Previous on March 11th. Sometime. Right. Uh, the Sandbox and The American Dream, both uh, one acts. You are directing them. Well, I've directed them many times. But, but you're directing them here at the Cherry Lane. In, in the order of The American Dream first, then Sandbox following, mm-hmm. which is the order in which I wrote them. And I've directed those plays several times. You certainly have worked with a number of collaborators as directors. Um, How do you choose when to direct for yourself and when to have someone else direct your work? Well, when I'm directing other people, I try to direct it myself. Like I love directing Beckett's plays. I learn so much about playwriting and so much about directing by directing a Beckett play. And uh, I've directed the world premieres of probably about half of my plays, including Seascape, that managed to get a Pulitzer Prize on Broadway, so maybe I didn't do too bad a job (laughs) of it. I learned the craft of being a director. And and look, when I write a play, I see it and I hear it as a play being performed in front of me when I'm writing it. 
So that's what I try to let other people see when I'm, when I'm directing a play of mine, the play that I saw when I was writing and directing it. Then why let anybody else direct your plays in their initial or major productions? Because I'm lucky enough to have a lot of productions. <laughs> well, how do you decide when you will direct versus somebody else directing? When I can get away with it. <laughs> there, there's a theory in, in, in theater that, that playwrights should not be allowed to direct their own work because they know too much about it and mm-hmm. are too protective. Then how do you decide, because you ultimately have, have decision-making power mm-hmm. who directs, how do you decide who will be the director? Uh, people who I know will be uh, both intelligent and sensitive directors and sympathetic to the play that uh, I've written. And can that vary from one play to another? Oh, sure. From, from, you know, oh, yes. Yeah, one director may not be suited to a certain of show. Of course, certainly, yeah. Do you have a short list of directors? And also, uh, it, it keeps getting shorter because they keep dying, but, uh, <laughs> which is not nice. But it's interesting. Certainly early on, Alan Schneider did, did many of your plays, mm-hmm. but more recently we've seen at least more than one production of your work done by Emily Mann, mm-hmm. Pam McKinnon this season, Mark Lamus has done several. There are... And Larry Sakharov, who I wish had lived so he could have gone on directing many more of them. Yeah, I think it's probably better to have one or one or two that you're always working with. What if they don't like the play that you've written, or what if, what if they're busy? Mm-hmm. You know, it's always nice to have other people around. And I, I do most of the work that I do in London these days is is, is with uh, uh, Anthony uh, Anthony um, Page. Page, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but how do how do you? Everybody in England is called either Anthony or Peter, by the way. <laughs> How do you know? What is it that you, the conversation that you need to have with a director, to know if they do understand, like, and I do research. I examine what they've directed before, and I've usually seen something that they've directed before, or, or I get I get a sense of of the kind of work they like to direct and know whether or not my work fits into in, 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 into that. I read reviews of what they've done. I, I do my homework. You said moments ago that you see the play fully formed in your head. See and hear. And hear, of course. And that it's about getting that vision on stage. When you go, when now you look at the American Dream and, and Sandbox, and you're looking at them from you know, decades perspective, does your vision change or is the play you want to see the same play that as you saw it all those years ago? In the same way that I don't believe in rewriting my plays 20 years after I've written them because I'm not the same person. Uh, No, I wouldn't uh, change my point of view about the way I want the plays to be seen, to be experienced. No. So physically it will look much the same? Yeah, sure. When you work with a director on, on one of your shows, being a director yourself, mm-hmm. do you give them any any guidance, any instructions, or do you step aside and let them do it? Um, we have conversations before rehearsals begin, you know, very friendly conversations. Did you have fun directing this play by, by that playwright or the other uh, thing? And uh, where do you see the problems in this one? Tell me where I've overwritten and things mm-hmm. like that, you know. And we have good conversations, and if, and if we... The most important thing of working with a director is you, the director and the playwright have mutual approval of actors. Mm-hmm. And you can tell an awful lot about how the director feels about your play by the actors that the director is suggesting for certain roles. And if you know they're totally wrong, those actors may be good, but totally wrong for the aesthetic of your play, then you have suspicions that perhaps you, you and the director shouldn't work together. 
Hmm. And as a director of your work, when you work with those actors, what kind of conversations do you have with them? What kind of instructions do you give them? I have learned over the years that uh, if you're directing a play, you do not talk to the actors of the way a playwright would. Because uh-huh. most playwrights talk in conceptual terms, and that can't be acted. You know, the only thing that can be acted is the moment-to-moment reality of what is happening to the character in that situation. And ultimately, that's the only thing that can be directed. You, you can't direct the metaphors or the, or the symbols of a play uh, unless you uh, uh, insist on making the mistake of doing that. But since you are both the director and the playwright in these instances, does an actor say to you, I don't understand this, what do you mean by this, or, or do you let them figure out? Then I out? say, well, I better ask the playwright, and I'll come back and <laughs> see what he said. Since we're talking no, about... You know, most actors understand that uh, I'm there as a director and that I'm, I'm there to help them... Mm-hmm translate from the page to the stage and, 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 and become the character. But as a, believe me, if you, if you choose the right actors, 90% of the job is done. They, they kind of get it, I guess. Yeah, if you've got the right actors, uh, the director keeps getting far more credit than the director deserves. <laughs> well, let's talk about actors then for a moment. Certainly there are actors who are closely associated with your work, again, because they have been in multiple productions. I speak mm-hmm. of people like George Grizzard, Marion Seldes, Maureen Anderman, Myra Carter, Brian Murray, more recently Bill Pullman, Mercedes Rule. Are there qualities to an actor that you think lend themselves lend themselves to your play? I think it's basically, since my people keep telling me the language of my plays is fairly precise and, and sometimes a little difficult, um, an actor who is trained to be able to speak language uh, without any problem, to handle to handle sentences of some complexity, that, that helps a lot. But do you think these actors have some greater ability to understand your work than others? I don't think there's anything terribly complex in any play that I've ever written that can't be understood by, by anybody if they, want to, if they want to do it. No, it is the nature of the training. Uh, and, and, and the use of language and, and the intelligence and the sensitivity. Just you want first-rate actors. And I've worked with, with three or four times with actors that I had such a terrible experience with that I'll never work with them again. I don't plan to name them. They know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I hope they do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would, I would assume that the actor gets pretty much what he or she needs from reading the script because the the dialogue certainly, but also the stage directions and, and everything you put on the page. They do, but some actors have been trained badly to uh, get rid of all the playwright stage directions oh. before the first day of rehearsal so they're not encumbered by that kind of information. That merely makes rehearsal a week longer than it should be. And does it ever occur where the actor says, can I change this? Can I do something different? Does that, does that happen? Uh, I don't like lines changed much. Uh-huh. But um, interpretation, I say, well, if you think you can do this in a different way that, that is, gets to my intention, that's fine. I tell my actors at the first day of rehearsal whether I'm directing or not. Look, as long as you say the lines right, the words in the order that I wrote them, pay some attention to the punctuation, you can do anything you want as long as what you do ends up with entirely what I intended. Hmm. You say you don't like lines changed much. Does that infer that there may be some possibility of making... I should have said I don't much like having lines changed. At all. (laughs) (laughs) Stick to it as written. Yeah, sure, why not? Unless you can prove to me that some other way is better. Uh 
we often hear playwrights say that in rehearsal and in performance, actors sometimes reveal something to them about the work that they've written. Do you respond to the way actors tackle roles in in original in the initial productions or I don't think I've ever had the experience of an actor doing a character differently from what I'd intended that is to my mind as effective as what I'd intended. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe I, I'm just selfish and want things my own way. I don't know. <laughs> Again, going through these these uh, four shows the, that are the inadvertent festival uh, earlier this season at Second Stage, Peter and Jerry, you were, in a way, revisiting and expanding upon your first success, the zoo story. What I was doing there was finally correcting something that I knew was a a lack when I wrote the zoo story. I basically wrote a rather than a two character play, I wrote a one and a half character play. Uh, I didn't think that Peter was developed enough as a character, and he just sat there responding. He was sort of a backboard for the character Jerry to bounce ideas uh, off of. And eventually I said, you know, well, why not, why not uh, write a first act for this, which introduces us to Peter so we'll understand his responses better to, to Jerry. And so that's why I wrote the play um, uh, Home Life. And had the t two of them done together. I didn't change a word of the zoo story. I don't do that. <clears throat> and most people have told me that it's an infinitely more complete and satisfying experience. But I have heard said, and tell me if this is true, that from here on in, you will only allow Peter and Jerry to be performed. I think, I think since it's a better dramatic experience, except for maybe a few college productions where kids want to want to do the zoo story, you know, in, in an amateur situation. Yeah. Uh, this is, the play is now called Peter and Jerry. Sure. Hmm. Why would I want half the play to be done? Maybe this is just semantics, but why not retain the title of the zoo story and just add a first act rather than, you know, have it be two separate names? Because um, the zoo story is only part of the experience. Mm -hmm. And home life, it, it, home life and the zoo story, two locations two separate events, all one play, Peter and Jerry. Tied into the same, well, actually three characters, because you have, you have a wife in the first character, yeah, first, yeah. Play, first mm -hmm. act of the play. Yeah. yeah. According to Mel... That was interesting, because I, when I wrote Home Life, I hadn't thought about uh, Peter in a long time, and I'd never thought about his wife, Anne, mm. but I still knew who she was, even though I hadn't thought about her, because yeah. I was able to write her very, very quickly and easily. So when you were writing Zoo Story to begin with, there was no wife even in your I mind. Must, I, I must, since I was writing the character Peter, I must have known that he was married, mm -hmm. and I must have known something about his wife. I just hadn't put anything mm -hmm. in, in the zoo story right. about the fact of his wife except the fact that he had one. Uh -huh. But obviously in, in creating the character of Peter, I had created the character of his wife, Anne. I just hadn't paid any attention to it. So it was still there. So now that you've created Anne, does that give you a different perspective of Peter? A more complete one, yes. Uh -huh. Not different. But it, 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 it explains a lot as to who he is, the decisions that he has made. And presumably the audience will better understand Peter. I think so, yes. That's why I, I added the first act. According to Mel Gusso's biography of you, you earlier had attempted to, or, or wrote, but never had produced a 
a companion piece to Zoo Story called Another Part of the Zoo. Oh, this was uh, something I did as fun, never to be performed professionally uh, for, for a gay organization, huh. a sort of a parody of the Zoo Story. It's not bad. It's sort of fun, but it, I, I, don't, I don't want it done. But it was not that same working out of, of things perhaps left unsaid? No, from- it was far more glib than that. Hmm. I was going to say, on, uh, on May 6th, another show will start previews opening on May 29th. That's Occupant, mm-hmm. which is a show that had ever so briefly been produced, but then because of the illness of, of well, the star... Well, uh, Annie Bancroft yeah. uh, was, was playing Louise Nevelson mm-hmm. uh, in that play. But we started previewing, and then Annie got uh, ill and or cold feet mm-hmm. uh, and um, pulled out, and so we never opened. And so uh, this will be the world premiere. With Mercedes Rule mm-hmm. as Louise Nevelson. Yes. Yeah. You have said that your plays, let's say, percolate in your head for a long time before mm. you, you write them down when they're ready to be written. I'm wondering how that experience with Occupant, was the play then finished and it merely did not get seen, or was there more, any work to be done on the play? Well, there's always work to be done on any play. I'm sure there's still work to be done in King Lear. <laughs> But we're not going to get we're not going to get it done. Uh, no, the play was uh, the play that is going to open this spring is exactly the same play that did not open uh, five years ago. Well, let's jump back now because we're talking all about the most current work, and uh, it's it's always interesting to know how people really got started. Certainly, you seemed to spring upon the scene very suddenly with Zoo's story. Had you been doing a lot of work that had gone unseen? Were you were you a struggling and scraping artist? Oh, I started writing poetry when I was 8 or 10, stopped when I was 28, wrote two terrible novels in my teens, tried the short story, nothing worked. So since I was a writer, I decided that a long time ago, I wrote a play called The Zoo Story, and that worked out better. Which, curiously enough, had its premiere in Germany, in German? In German, in West Berlin going through the Soviet lines to get to see it. Um, when I wrote the play, there wasn't too much going on in off-Broadway theater, and nobody seemed terribly interested in a rather grumpy play about uh, about, about two people in Central Park. And uh, so I gave it to a lot of friends of mine who sent it to other people, and it got from New York to Florence, Italy, to Zurich, Switzerland, to Frankfurt, where they bought the play and had it translated. And it seems a very Cold War smuggling of your play <laughs> yes. across international lines. And then it was done in Berlin, in German, on a double bill with Beckett's Crap's Last Tape, which was a wonderful experience. And th- pers- this is 1958, is it? 58, yeah. 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 And but, you, were, you were not yet 30. Well, I wrote it in 58. It happened in 59. That actually got produced. Yeah. For someone who already spoke about precision of language, I'm wondering about the experience of seeing your first production in a language that um, did you actually speak German? Did no, you know? No, you can't. You can't learn a language where they put the verbs at the ends of sentences. It makes no sense at all. <laughs> the Germans have managed, but well, um, but but what was the experience they've managed, of watching? They've managed a lot of things. I mean, you certainly know what was being said, but perhaps it was not precisely the words you had used. Well, I had a long conversations with the translator, a man named Pincus Brown, who was both an actor uh, and a scholar. And uh, the fact that he was an actor allowed him to translate the play in, in, into active German language. And that was just fine. 
Did that present any problems in keeping the intent that you had? In other words... Apparently not, no. Everything was able to be translated reasonably well. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly... I mean, they didn't move, move the setting to Germany. They kept it as an American right, experience. Right, right. Yeah, but, you know, in some languages, there, there are words that don't exist in another language. It's very That's interesting. Right. And always in translation, you have to find equivalencies sometimes. Uh-huh. What happens now when I get a, a translator's thoughts on, on a play of mine, whatever, whatever the language is, they're very, very precise, saying, well, this metaphor that you have in English just won't translate in, 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 into Czech... Uh, we have to use another metaphor. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? And, and I get approval of that sort of thing. Certainly, that production of Zoo Story was probably one of the farthest out of town <laughs> experiences. Pretty a far out of town. Ask. But you know, the nice thing about it was there was some guy from the New York Times in Berlin at that time who wrote an article for the New York Times saying, "Isn't it interesting? Young American playwright." has to come all the way through the Russian lines to, to West right. Berlin to have his first production. And that so shamed a few people in New York that they bought the play right away. <laughs> so that, that really is what led to the New York course, production. Yes. And the New York production happened less than a year after the uh, Berlin production. Mm-hmm. Now, how, how, did that, how did that happen? Basically? Uh, Richard Barr, who produced so many of my plays, the first 15 of them perhaps before he died, uh, had read about this. And read the play, liked it a lot, and he was moving into into serious off-Broadway production then, and uh, bought the rights to the zoo story and the Beckett play. I got back from the Berlin production, discovering that I already had a New York production set up. Now, the zoo story certainly is well-known now, but back then, when it was new, what was the reception in the theater community and in, in, in the city in general? Uh, the, the double bill got a very, very good review. Some uh-huh. people liked the Beckett play more than mine. Some people liked my play more than the Beckett play. But it seemed to get enough favorable reviews, aside from, you know, a, a few of the usual stupidities. And what did that do for you as a playwright, then, to be finally produced? I was York? finally able to quit my job delivering telegrams for Western Union. <laughs> yeah. Because at Western Union, I was earning, earning 38 bucks a week, plus tips. Off-Broadway, I was earning 65 bucks a week, and in those days, that was a huge difference. Mm. What was the affinity between you and Beckett? What, what do you think that the commonalities Master and student. Are? Master and student. Yes. Did you ultimately have the opportunity to get to know him? Yeah, we, 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 we met a few times. Very nice, quiet, shy man. But, you know, I'm never as interested in, in who does the work as I am the work itself. <laughs> I don't feel great need to... To, to know who the people are who write things. Well, what's, what, what can be worse? And this has happened a couple of times of admiring somebody's work a lot. And then you meet the person and they're awful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't like that. So I, I stay awake sometimes from getting to meet too many people. What, what, what playwrights do you admire? Mostly, well, of the 20th century playwrights, the essential yeah. ones, I think, are, are uh, Chekhov, Pirandello, Brecht, and Beckett. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I know thousands of plays. In the, and I forget that experience every time I go to the theater. Mm-hmm. In those early years, you had the opportunity to meet Thornton Wilder, who mm-hmm. gave you some some advice, counsel. I was a poet still then. I hadn't written any plays. And I spent an evening with Thornton, having him read my poetry. And he, at the end of it, he said, uh, why don't you write plays? 
I, th- I don't think there was anything terribly prescient about that. I think he was trying to save poetry from my work. <laughs> <laughs> but did you then send him your plays, or did he see your plays? No. The, no I, I th- then he, I think he saw the zoo story, and I did, he didn't like it very much, which I thought was interesting. Well, why, why, why? But you see, I admired Wilder as a playwright so much. I'm absolutely convinced, though we never get to, very seldom get to see a good production of it. Most of the time it's, it's done like sort of a... Christmas card or something, that Our Town is probably the finest American play. It's an extraordinary play. Mm-hmm. And uh, Skin of Our Teeth has some amazing things in it, too. I think Wilder's an extraordinary writer. And what I don't understand is when, when the list of, of the great American playwrights, you know, O'Neill and, and, and Tennessee and all that stuff, the list comes down, uh, Thornton Wilder's ever on it. I think it's so strange. Mm-hmm. Are there other American playwrights you think that are, don't get their due? Sure, most. Hmm. That's called commercial theater. <laughs> now, in this period, you the early years, you wrote a play called Fam and Yam, mm-hmm. in which a... It should have been called Fap and Yap, but it's called Fam and Yam. <laughs> um, in which a young playwright goes to see an older playwright. Um, the younger playwright being very much like me, and the older playwright <laughs> being very much like a combination of Tennessee and Belinge. Hmm. Now you are the quintessential famous well, so American I, I playwright. Rewrote, I rewrote the play. Did you a little bit? And 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 uh, there are there are things in the rewritten version which, which suggest that perhaps I, I am the older playwright, huh? How, or, or no longer the younger playwright. How much after the original did you do the rewrite? Was oh, when I got old enough. Hmm. But you're now thirty-five years afterwards. Ah. You're now in the position of being someone who presumably many young playwrights and drama students seek out, let alone interviewers on radio programs. How did your perspective change as you... How did my what? Your perspective of the viewpoint of being whether you're the younger or the older, and how do you how do you deal with all the people who come to you looking for advice, for counsel, for thoughts? Well, uh, I like to see good plays... And there aren't very many around, so I try to discur- encourage as many good young American playwrights as I possibly can, because I want to see some good theater. And I advise them of all the pitfalls, the terrible pitfalls, and commercial theater and all the rest of the stuff. Um, I think it's your responsibility to, to encourage good people and, and, and to spend a lot of time teaching if you possibly can. It's a responsibility to transmit this information to another generation. Well, you have spent much time in universities, notably yeah, University yeah, sure. of Houston, but other schools as well, teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you uh, decide who will be in your class? Because I choose the students based right. upon what how? I consider their innate talent. I'm not interested in somebody who's written a play that's a good imitation of somebody else's. I'm interested in, in, in original talent, and I don't care whether the play is fully formed or not. If I, if I see talent there, considerable talent, those are the people that I want to help. So students have to submit writing samples yeah, to you? Sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are, are, are playwrights born or can they be taught? Can they be developed? I think that, um, well, you can develop somebody's understanding of, the, of their craft. But I don't think, uh, based on the fact that there are very, very few writers who are equally good at the novel, the poem, and the play, for example... You know, uh, T.S. Eliot was a far better poet than a playwright. Uh, Thomas Hardy was a far better 
novelist than a, than a playwright. Arthur Miller was an infinitely better playwright than a novelist. Uh, most people aren't capable of, of, of being excellent in the two, with the exception possibly of Beckett, hmm. who's just as good a novelist as he is a playwright. So are, are, are people w- born with that innate ability then to be a playwright, do you think? I think so. If, if, if the, uh, I think we probably have a lot of first-rate playwrights around who've never figured out that they're playwrights, of course, mm-hmm. which is too bad since we never have enough good playwrights. Yeah, you can help somebody develop and shape a talent, but I don't think you can create the talent. I can tell, teach anybody how to write like somebody else. When did you realize or discover that you were a playwright? At, uh, at, when I, when I failed at everything else and wrote my first play. <laughs> <laughs> but did, did you know as, as a child, as a teenager, that you had that in you, or did that just come out No, later? I knew I was a writer. Uh-huh. After, well, you I figured out, after I figured out that I wasn't going to be a very good painter, and I was too incompetent to become a composer. And then you decided that you weren't a very good poet and a very good novelist, so... That's right. What was left? What was left? <laughs> Virginia Woolf, um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, when it was produced on Broadway, obviously was a sensation. It put you on the map as a great playwright, so immediately... Uh, what was the effect of the fame of of that play and of you as a playwright so early in your career? I've always tried to keep uh, keep it in mind that what happens to something you've done in the reviews, uh, commercial success, aesthetic success, always keep in mind that there's not necessarily much relationship between popularity and excellence. There's mm-hmm. not necessarily much relationship between... Uh, uh, much of anything in the theater. And so I, 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 I've never been terribly impressed by, by praise. Sometimes it's for the wrong reason. But I would rather take a favorable, stupid review than, than a theoretically intelligent, unfavorable review. But, um, no, I don't think I've uh, ever been too impressed by any of that. Several things in the wake of uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf strike me as very interesting, and I may not have the chronology precisely, but you began something called the Albie Bar Wilder Playwrights Unit mm-hmm. fairly quickly. Can you can you tell us about what that was? It was an organization that we financed, my two producers and I, out of the profits of Virginia Woolf to begin with, to um, produce plays by young American playwrights that were having trouble getting their work done. And we did, uh, I think, 110 productions of, of, of new playwrights, including John Guare and Terence McNally and I think Sam Shepard and a lot of others. We did their first work uh, because that's a responsibility. You want to see good stuff, and so you help good people. And you also, it seems, began... And also the taxes were high in those days, so why not use the money for something useful? <laughs> you also began to, it seems, be a producer of your own work in Theater 1969, Theater 1971, again, with with with, with Barr and, and Wilder. What was the impetus for that? Well, I suppose that was just being one of the three financers of my own plays. Hmm. Not a very wise thing to do. I was going to say, you know, the adage that we heard in certainly the show, the producers <laughs> never put your own money into no, a show. No. <laughs> but this stuff was all off-Broadway and didn't cost much <laughs> back in those days. Well, it didn't cost much back then, but now it certainly does. Mm. So what, what, what advice? You know, we, when we did Crap's last tape in the zoo story, 
mm-hmm. Provostown Playhouse in 1960. Sixty, cost $2,200 to put those two plays on. Now it would cost 400000 mm-hmm. We did Virginia Woolf on Broadway two years later for 42000 bucks. Now production is a million and a half. It's ridiculous what's happened. Way, so, way out of range of, of, of inflation. Well, for an established And the only thing that's happened in the years, everybody's, everybody's getting more money out of theater except the playwrights. Mm. Back in 1960, playwrights got 10% of the gross. Now, at best, we're down to 5%. How did that happen? Everybody else is greed. Corrupt producers, basically, I think. Selfish it, producers, rather, not corrupt, selfish. Is that is that percentage a rule of thumb, or is it written down somewhere in a contract? Uh, there's a minimum contract, mm-hmm. and everybody gets the minimum. You can fight for perks occasionally, but um, there's enough there's enough money to go around. I don't know why everybody's being so selfish. <laughs> well, for an established playwright to get a play produced is one thing, but what about the new playwrights today with it being Look, so expensive? it's not all that easy for an established playwright to get the work done. You know, it takes a while costs so much now and uh, you don't you know and the producer just can't say you've written a new play oh wonderful let's do it they'd like to read it now <laughs> and find out whether it has any commercial possibilities at all is that because there's so much money at stake it's so risky yes. that they don't want to take basically a chance basically that risk yes mm-hmm. but it is interesting. also I think audiences are getting more and more trained to like mediocrity rather than excellence and, and, and to like junk musicals rather than uh, Straight plays. That's that's a, another entire discussion there. But how about for plays, revivals? Are you in favor of revivals of plays? I would rather see a new play than a revival anytime. Uh-huh. We're talking about producers. You have had the fairly singular experience of you've already mentioned a, a long-standing relationship with Richard Barr and now with Liz, and, with Liz McCann and now with Liz. What is it about those individuals? They're crazy. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> Let's do Edward's work. <laughs> it helps to have lunatics involved with your work. <laughs> but uh, uh, lovable lunatics. Lovable right? lunatics. Yes. <laughs> do you think they understand your work in, in in a way that other producers might not? No, two of them. The two of them had had a very very odd notion about producing. Play should be done if they deserve to be done, not. Necessarily, will they make money? Hmm. Most producers produce plays only to make money, not whether they admire the play or not. Well, you used the word a moment ago, commercial theater. What about non-commercial, not-for-profit theaters? Or a better chance there? Non-for-profit theaters, you have a lot larger opportunity to have serious work done. Except the non-for-profit theaters are in terrible trouble; they're all losing money, uh, right and left. No theaters are in very serious trouble financially everywhere along the line. In talking about Virginia Woolf, it's worth noting that uh, it is one of only two of your plays to be made into film. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly because that's you, the only two I've allowed to be made into film. Yeah. Well, as you talk about, you're talking about money and what can be made. Why have, how, why have you not allowed more of your plays to be done? Because those are the only two, Virginia Woolf and Delicate Balance, were the only two where it was clear that there was nobody going to be writing a screenplay to destroy my work. There's no, there was no... People tried to write screenplays for Virginia Woolf, but it didn't work. The actors and the director would look at the screenplays and say, no, we're not going to do that. And so in both of those movies, the text is mine. 
And that's what I've insisted on in all other requests for my, a play of mine to be made into a movie. Either I write the screenplay or I have total approval of the screenplay. Did you make any changes for the movie versions? No. I, in, in Delicate Balance, I think probably I cut about five minutes out because uh-huh. I thought it was redundant. But I was the one who made the cut. Hmm. Have you ever thought that there was a story that you wanted to tell through film and not through the stage? No. No, I'm a playwright. Uh, I find that, generally speaking, the word is the enemy of film. It's 90% of visual experience. And the theater, even though you do see it, it's 90% a heard experience, a word experience. When, uh, ultimately, Virginia Woolf and Delicate Balance were put on film, were you happy with the result? I thought Delicate Balance was just about perfect. Uh, with Who's the Fate of Virginia Woolf, I'd been promised a different cast, of course. I'd been promised Betty Davis and James Mason, <clears throat> which I still think would have been an extraordinary film. But um, I was very happy that uh, no serious damage was done, done to my text. That was nice. And I think Elizabeth did her fine, finest acting job, and, and Richard was, was excellent, as he always is. Um, I was initially puzzled that the, while I wrote the play in color, it was shot as a film in black and white because in those days a serious film couldn't be in color. It had to be in black and white. And how did that impact the the movie itself, do you think? Do you think well, it probably has uh, done damage to the income from residuals. <laughs> but aside from that, who cares? But it, it didn't affect uh, your Considering Hollywood's bookkeeping, I wouldn't have gotten any more money anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Talk <laughs> about corruption. <laughs> but in talking about the film of Virginia Woolf and producers. Liz McCann has said to me that one of the challenges she found in selling tickets to the recent revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was that people came, either came in expecting the film or didn't come in because they felt they'd seen the film, why see the play? Mm-hmm. Was that, is that something you'd become aware of? Yeah, because every time the, the movie is shown on somewhere on television, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people see it. And, at, you know, even if, if you have a hit on Broadway, you have no more than, um, you know, 4,000 people coming in a week to see what you've done. So, of course, an awful lot of more people uh, see a film. And it can get in the way of, of a healthy box office response for a revival of a play. Mm-hmm. In the wake of Virginia Woolf, there were several plays that you did which were adaptations of other people's work uh, either of other plays or of novels Ballad of the South I thought I would try the adaptation form I did it four times and what was the experience of trying to either interpret or alter the work of another artist I think that the uh, things that I did were okay certainly Carson McCullers was very happy with what I did with her novella Ballad of the South Cafe and there were two people in America who liked my adaptation of James Purdy's Malcolm, James Purdy and me. So that made me happy. Now, the third one was merely a translation of an English play from English to American, which meant that I had to completely rewrite the damn thing. And my production of Nabokov's uh, Lolita was never produced. Uh, some awful travesty uh, of it was produced. The worst theatrical experience I've ever had actors who refused to say the lines because they thought they were above it, uh, and a director who was frightened to death of the producer, a criminal producer and things. It was an awful experience. So let's go back 
to what you just said about your vaunted, version. Vaunted criminal producer. Sorry, I don't <laughs> want to get sued. The guy's still around. Does your original version of Lolita still exist? Is yes, it something you it, would ever revisit? It is a, the original version was a two-evening version. Hmm. Yes. Hmm. Two evenings. How how many hours altogether then would that be? Like uh, two hours you know, each evening? Two hours in the evening, yeah. Four hours, yeah. Wow. But then I reduced it to a, to a one-evening version, which works reasonably well. I'd like to see the two-evening version, though. <laughs> Three Tall Women. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. Where, where, where that where that whole idea came from of the three different women and well after my adoptive mother died I f- remember that she'd been a pretty extraordinary person I didn't like her she didn't like me we didn't get along but I thought that was an interesting dramatic subject so I wrote a play about her and almost every word in the play that she speaks is something that she had said in real life and uh, that was interesting but even though I, I was writing about a real person and quoting a real person who, who had died, I had the feeling that I was inventing somebody totally new, which was the only way I could write it, of course. And the three different women were three very different ages. Yes, but it's the same woman. The same, right. Yes. At it's 26 and 52 and 92, was it? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's it's funny that John just went to Three Tall Women because it's a jump from you having mentioned Lolita there is a period in the 1980s and the first half of the 90s where many people talk about your having been out of favor. Uh, very much out of favor. That happens to every playwright. It's one of the things we have to get used to. Sometimes they're going to like what we do, and other times they they want to push somebody else. And you're going to be out of favor sometimes. I don't think the work that I was doing during that 10-year period was <clears throat> any better or any worse than the work I did before or the work I've done since. But since I'd had a couple of Broadway flops, really, you know, disasters, commercial disasters, there was no way anybody was going to take a chance on my work anymore. Dick Barr had died, and I didn't have Liz yet. So what, what brought you back into favor? What What do you think are the things that turned the tide? Three well, tall maybe, women maybe certainly it was, Maybe it was time. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what happened. Suddenly, uh, Three Tall Women helped a lot, of course, but that was done uh, off-Broadway. Some people also point to the signature season of your work here in New York. That didn't hurt either. Well, they did um, six or eight of my plays that hadn't been done in New York before. I was writing all, and having I was having productions all over Europe and all over the United States, just was persona non grata in New York City. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was that um, in any way related to theater itself. In other words, were, were other plays being produced or plays in general less in favor because musicals were, were I think were, that's, were that's, that's been a general thing, but I don't want to tr- try to extend a parallel there. I'd have to uh-huh. do more th- research on that. Uh-huh. So what was the experience of coming back into favor? Because then it seemed like we started seeing it was, an, it was amusing. Revivals. It was amusing and ironic. Were there people who had to eat crow? <laughs> well, that's that's always nice when you when it's not nice for the crows, but it's, <laughs> nice, it's, it's nice when people have to do it. Yeah, we we, we kind of skipped right over Seascape, which was originally on Broadway in 1975, was revived a couple of years with, ago. With me directing, right? The production of the original right, production, right? Yeah, in 1975. Mm-hmm. Basically, um, two couples. Uh, how how did you? come up with that whole concept of the two different couples. You mean the uh, the two the, human beings and the two lizards? The two lizards. Yeah, I was not wanting to give I away. I guess the, I suppose I've been thinking for a long time about evolution uh-huh. and wondering whether really evolution has been happening. I'm, I'm not a creationist, you understand, but perhaps it's devolution. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're going downhill rather than uphill. 
And so I thought I, I would be interesting to do an intellectual examination of, of the value difference between human pe- beings and other, and other creatures. The the term theater of the absurd is often used. Is this one of those instances where depends you have talking which, lizards? It depends <laughs> on which, which theater of the absurd you're talking about. Or, or, or how absurd, I guess. Because, you know, the theater of the absurd, the concept by Martin Eslin, he, he invented the term, was a philosophical concept, an existentialist concept, mm. the absurdity of man's position in a universe which makes no sense, where you have to create your, your own sense. That was theater of the absurd. But that was too complex for some critics, apparently. So they decided it was a stylistic matter. Any play that wasn't naturalistic was theater of the absurd. So I don't know what the term means anymore. Seascape, I was very curious when the revival was done a couple of seasons ago with George Grizzard and and Franny Sternhagen. um, Those actors were a good bit older than the actors who played so the, was the author, of course. <laughs> but I'm wondering about the choice to take characters who were played by people in their original production, directed by you, who were in their 50s, and to have them played by actors in their 70s. The only disadvantage of having actors in their 70s is that, uh, I don't know, arthritis, uh, the ability to remember lines, stuff like that, which they, they were fine on it. I think I ca- I, the original lady that I had asked to play Nancy in Seascape was Helen Hayes, who was a good deal older than Deborah Carr. Mm. And um, she decided she wanted to do it, but that she really couldn't uh, handle stage anymore. So I, th- I think I had probably originally thought of those people as being oh, as, uh, of the age of, of the, uh, what they were in the, uh, in the revival. So having them actually then that age in their seventies reflecting on their their life together did that did that add to the impact of the story? Did it have any any effect at all on it? It probably, uh, since their lives were far more precarious, mm-hmm. with or without dangerous lizards threatening them, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, probably did. Yes. Though, so, um, do I keep casting older the older I get? Not necessarily. Well, I would assume you cast what's appropriate for the characters. I try to. Yes, of course, certainly. Always remembering that uh, you're safer with younger actors than you are with older actors. Because they remember the lines better. They remember the lines better, and they don't get sick as much and stuff like that. As a young man, certainly in the press, you were portrayed as something of an enfant terrible. Better that than not. I'm I'm very amused by my 1970-era copy of Tiny Alice, which on the, the back cover of the book... Um, goes so far as to share with potential buyers the fact that your plays have been denounced as sordid, sick, and cesspool deep. Isn't that nice? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm curious because certainly as you became recognized, produced, uh, you you became, again, the the famous American playwright. um, And can you have, do you want to have the same ability? Indeed, were you trying to shock people then? Do you want to be able to shock people now? I have never sat down at, at, at my desk and said, now I must shock people. I've never done that. And the plays that come into my mind obviously have some things in them that offend some people and shock others. But I do think that any any player ever any aesthetic experience, whether it's a novel or a 
poem or a painting or, or anything <clears throat> has got to be about something. It can't just be cute uh, uh, escapism. No, no, no good in that. All art has to be useful. If it's not useful, it's a waste of time. I ask this particularly because of my particular favorites of your plays. The Goat struck me as a play where people, in many cases, could not see the play for the concept. Apparently. Bestiality does seem to get people's attention. But the play is not about bestiality, of course. Not at all. No, the play is about the limits of our tolerance. We talked a moment ago about the uh, the human couple in the seascape mm-hmm. being, in the case of the most recent uh, revival in their 70s, you are soon to be 80 yourself. Why do you keep I've working? noticed that. Yeah, yeah. Why, why, why do you keep working? Most people at, at your age might be uh, thinking of spending the rest of their life on a beach looking at the ocean or I'm a playwright. Yeah. I keep getting ideas for plays. Uh-huh. And even though I'm not a Republican, I, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> um, I keep getting ideas for plays, so I get them out of my head, so I can get new ideas for plays. <laughs> I, I love being a playwright. I enjoy it a great deal. It is what I am. And, and why would I stop practicing it as long as I have my marbles? How, how do you actually work? Do you work with a pen and paper? Do you work on a computer? Do you... Manuscript, yeah. Mm-hmm. Pen on paper, yes. The, the, the old-fashioned way. Yeah, the old-fashioned way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a certain... Uh, I, do, I don't have a quill, but I thought about that. <laughs> do you have a certain time of day you write, a certain location where you write? I usually write out uh, in the country. Uh, I have a house on the ocean uh, in Montauk on a hill about 50 feet above the beach, and that's that's a good place to write. Lizards turn up and things like that. <laughs> you never know. You never know about that. But um, I wait a long time before I write anything down. I let it really, really come to the point that I, I can't do anything but write it. You, if I ever get to the point where I don't have any ideas for plays, I like to think that I'll stop writing them. But the lack of ideas doesn't stop many playwrights from writing. As these ideas are, are in your mind, as you're, as you're gelling, do you jot down notes? No. No, I make the assumption, which these days may be incorrect, that if I can't remember it, it's not worth remembering. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Do you ever sit and think, what was that idea I had? I can't think of it now. And then wish they, you they had always, They always come back. They, they do. Yeah, sometimes it takes 10 minutes, but I get them back. They're deep in there somewhere. Yeah. We began this conversation by talking about your desire not to have people know what the play is about, be told. No, I think people down. should be there to figure out what the play is about, what, it, what, what its concerns are, but I don't think they should go go in with it written down on a piece of paper so they can take an exam. But now, having spent already about 55 minutes asking you, peppering you with questions about yourself and how you work and your experiences, I wanted to ask you about the experience of having a biography done. Mel Gusso, who we both knew well, uh, wrote what at the moment is looked at as the definitive biography of you. And I'm no, the only one, too. Wondering what you feel about having your life set down for all of us who want to see your plays and know you better to read? Well, I suppose there comes a time if, if, you, if you have any, any accomplishment and, and, and any I hate the term, but fame, somebody's going to want to write a biography of you. And uh, some people have this thing called the, the, the official biography 
which is you know con- completely controlled by, 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 the, by, by the subject and then there's the uh, the truth the un, uncensored biography um, which is usually filled with as many lies as, as the protected biography is why not find somebody who like Mel Gusso who was a really good guy wonderful theater critic intelligent and sympathetic to my work why not have him do it and if you're going to have a biography done, no holds barred. Talk about everything. I've never had done anything in my life or had any part of my life that I've, I've been unwilling to share with people. I, I am who I am, as uh, what's his name wrote in the song. Jerry Herman. Yeah, Jerry <laughs> Herman wrote. Yeah. Did you at any point consider writing the book yourself as an autobiography? No. 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 Because, no. because you're a playwright, not a writer? Yeah, I don't uh, think about myself in the third person very much. That would stand in the way, wouldn't it? How how do you think of yourself? If somebody were to say, who is Edward Albee? What is he like? How, how would you describe yourself? Uh, I'm somebody who writes plays, basically. And that's my usefulness, fundamentally. I shoot my mouth off politically a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I try to help uh, good, serious, younger playwrights. And... Um, I think I live, live a, usual, usual, a reasonably useful life. That's nice. <laughs> Very nice, actually. Now, this is the point in the show where we would normally say, tell us what you're writing next, but we know, of course, not to ask you what it's about, but there is a title. It's, a, it's going to be about 90 minutes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a title that you've spoken of. Silence. A play called Silence. Mm-hmm. Coming from Edward Albee. Yeah. And about 90 minutes. I think so. Well, Edward, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. We really Thanks appreciate it. Thanks for a good conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Edward. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.